0: I'm Katie Brejean mcgrady and this is Ave Explores. When my husband and I were considering where we wanted to go on our honeymoon, we looked everywhere from a resort in Mexico to do we just, you know, go to Hawaii, take that big trick now. We thought about going to Rome or Ireland. And then we stumbled upon this little resort in the mountains of Colorado, Gateway Canyon. And the whole premise of Gateway Canyons was that it was basically this adventure resort for adults. So you could go ATV riding and take a helicopter ride around the mountain, mountain climbing, rock climbing, whole nine yards. And they had what was called the fossil experience, where we literally got to go hiking into these mountains with a paleontologist anthropology expert who knew everything about rocks. And I'm I wish I could tell you more about this guy, but all I can really tell you is his name, Zebulon Miracle, that was his real name, and his title at the resort was the Curator of Curiosity. And Zebulon Miracle took Tommy and I out into the mountains and brought us through essentially the history of the earth by way of where we happened to be in Colorado, just about an hour and a half or so outside of Grand Junction, telling us how old the rocks were and what kind of dinosaurs might have lived in that particular area. I mean, it was really, it was fascinating. And my science teacher husband, who studied biology in college, was just absolutely thrilled, like a kid in a candy store. And he kept saying the whole rest of the trip, oh my gosh, that was like the best thing we could have ever done. It was worth every penny to get to go out there with Zebulon Miracle and and see these rocks and find these fossils and learn this history. It just reminds you, he kept saying this over and over again, it just reminds you how old everything is and how small we actually are. And that's what we're talking about today. We're really digging into this idea that the world is much older than we even realize, and that that actually puts things in perspective when it comes to our faith. That as human beings, we've not been around that long, and that's perfectly okay. It's quite profound to ponder the age of the earth, to think about the age of the rocks upon which we live, the rocks upon which we build our lives even. And what that can do for our faith, what that can do for our perspective on God's creative power, on why we happen to be here at all, the intentional thought of the creator himself. This is, of course, part of our entire Ave Explores series on faith and science. You can find all of our content over at AveMariaPress.com, articles, videos, Facebook Live conversations, more podcasts, really digging into this topic. This week, we had a Facebook Live conversation with Colonel Benjamin Alvin Drew, an astronaut who's literally been to space, has done a spacewalk, has looked down upon Earth literally from the outside. We had an earlier podcast this week with Dr. Christopher Baglow, and today we're sitting down with geologist Paul Geisting and talking about his perspective on how knowing the age of the Earth, digging into the history and the science behind everything from the rocks upon which we stand to the fossils that we find, to really just pondering the bigness of creation. It gives us a renewed perspective of our faith. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with geologist Paul Geist. Paul, thanks so much for joining us for Ave Explorers.
1: Katie, thanks for having me. I was really excited to get that invitation.
0: Yeah, so we are thrilled to have you on. I mean, our whole series, we've been finding scientists, finding people with boots on the ground doing this work. And, you know, the occasional theologian is sneaking in as well. And you kind of fit in both of those categories. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Gosh, well, I started out on a farm in southeast Indiana. (laughs) So I was very close to the soil from a very early age. We raised pigs. We had, of course, corn and soybeans and wheat and hay. So I was very scientifically oriented. I mean, I loved reading and math from a very early age and knew I wanted to be a scientist from a very early age. I loved chemistry. But I love the outdoors, so tried to sort of uh, triangulate that and wound up in geology, where you can do some science and be outside at least sometimes. Although I've spent an awful lot of my research career in a laboratory looking at things that people have collected and brought to us, but at least there's that connection with the outdoors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I went to I went to Washington University in St. Louis, which is a beautiful campus, partly because the buildings are all faced with what's called Missouri red granite. So if you're a geologist, if you go to the school in the Midwest. To go and see what we call hard rocks, to say igneous or metamorphic rocks, there's only a very few places. And Southeast Missouri is one of those very few places. And the rocks that you'll see are these bright pink granites and the, the sort of volcanic equivalent of granite. And they are very old. They are a billion and a half years old. So there are plenty of places where you can go around and see rocks that are 500 million years old, themselves very old. They're Cambrian rocks. It's called the, that period of the geologic time scale. And then you go back another billion years and you can see that contact where this rock is a billion, you know, that's a billion years. That's For me, it was always an experience to look at that, at those contacts and to think about Mm -hmm. them afterward, almost as a sort of mystagogical sort of pondering of this experience I've been through. And to think about, I mean, you know, it's a very concrete visualization of, This physical universe, which first of all, didn't explain itself. We'll probably get into this a little bit later. Mm -hmm. We live in a contingent universe. It has a creator. And that creator is so much bigger than I am, both Mm -hmm. temporally and spatially. I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, God transcends temporal and the spatial, but it spells it out for you in a very visceral way to know that this rock has been here. It has witnessed Mm -hmm. so much, so much has gone on since this rock was first laid down. So I got my bachelor's and master's in, at Washington, St. Louis, and then I went to Notre Dame for graduate school at Notre Dame. It's actually the department. I believe it is now. What is it? Civil engineering. It's like C-E-E-S, I believe is the name of the department. So it's civil engineering and environmental sciences. When I was there, it was, I think, civil engineering and geological sciences. So I'm actually, I'm a mineralogist by training, which means I know I had to learn a lot of math and physics and chemistry. I'm a solid mm-hmm. state chemist who works on stuff that comes from nature. Mm-hmm. And stuff that comes from nature is complicated. It's yeah. really complicated. So I spent a lot of time actually shooting x-rays at uh, crystals of uranium compounds. It's beautiful. Can't possibly talk about it in a podcast, but that's, that's <laughs> my specialty, is talking about dealing with that. So and that has uh, environmental applications. What we were doing had relevance to are we going to do with all of the nuclear waste that was generated in particular by weapons, mm-hmm. but also the spent nuclear fuel from nuclear reactors? Mm-hmm. There's so many directions we go and, and we'll see what we end up being able to fit into this podcast. But yeah, that's work that goes on at Notre Dame, at least. Um, right. So that's, right. that's Dr. Peter Burns, who's still there and has a very large group uh, working and you know, pulls in a lot of funding to work on that because it is a very urgent problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't Want people drinking neptunium or uranium or any of the other compounds and right. <laughs> radioactive elements? The nuclear waste.
0: Well, I just want to clarify: what do you do with it? You don't just like go dump it in the water. <laughs> like,
1: uh, <laughs> like, there's no, going to be a way to get rid Although, of it. Although, unfortunately, see that's the problem is that you mm-hmm. know there's been a, a progression in what we have done with it. So mm-hmm. there's a particular site that I'll use as an example. It's a major site. It's far from the only one, sadly. But it's a microcosm of a lot of what went on. So in the late 40s and 50s at a place called Hanford, which is by the Columbia River in southern Washington state, beautiful, environmentally sensitive locality. Unfortunately, uh, they did this a fair distance from the river, but not really far enough for comfort. Mm-hmm. They would throw, you know, uranium and related compounds in ditches in the 50s. Mm. And then there was a progression over time. Oh, okay, we can't actually do this at the mm-hmm. scale. So they put them in single shell steel tanks. What people were thinking, we'll put this in here and we know they have the, probably a 20 year lifetime or something. What are you going to do in 20 years? Are you going mm-hmm. to come dig it out? They didn't. Mm. <laughs> they sure didn't. They just kept it so in. To a, I mean, they stay there a much longer time than that. And they are, this is now, I got my PhD in 2006 and I haven't kept up with everything that's happened in that, uh, at mm-hmm. that site, for example, and I know we are doing some things. We have made some progress, mm-hmm. you know, as a country, you know, spending an enormous amount of money to deal with a problem that we really wish we hadn't had to start with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happens, that's a very sandy environment. So it makes a huge difference whether it's sand, silt or clay. So in a sandy environment, water can flow relatively easily and start transporting these materials. Then they go toward the river because that's where the water's going.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There are various things you could do. You could, for example, Uh, One of the things that we were doing in the research in our group, which was very much basic science, like, you know, how does uranium behave in this environment? We don't know enough to do all the engineering we would like to do. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating area to watch. There's what I like to call the bureaucratic mindset. You could use the term bureaucratic mindset for a lot of things. What I mean in this context is it's very human to believe that we basically know everything we need to know. Maybe we'll round out some things at the corners. We don't. We don't know what we don't know, but Mm -hmm. we're certainly almost always ready to pretend that we know enough and based on what we do know to start writing out plans and procedures. And then it turns out we don't know as much as we thought we did. Yeah, And that can be very problematic.
0: You know, you saying that phrase, we don't know what we don't know, as a geologist, I heard that phrase in my theology class. You know, we don't know what we don't know when it comes to the creation of the world or when it comes to God's existence. So you're Catholic and studying right. like rocks in front of your face that very clearly have been here for far longer than humans have. What's the touchstone right. for you? Like, how does that faith and that understanding of that bigness of the world, how do those two things intersect in your mind and in your heart?
1: The realization that I am very small, but in terms of what that means for me spiritually, you, know, if you look at the universe and I've studied planetary science as well. But having studied rocks from Mars and thinking about the history of Mars, looking at, you know, ex- I'm you know, from the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I was born in 1979. This 21st century is cool, it's interesting, but it's weird and it's not home. <laughs> <laughs> You're solidly
0: in Gen X territory there.
1: I am so a Gen Xer, yes. I absolutely, absolutely identify with that. And you millennials, I love you. I don't understand you.
0: Uh, We don't understand this either. Don't worry. Yeah,
1: yeah. The idea that we have any kind of evidence about planets outside the solar system, I'm going to be geeking about about Mm -hmm. that for however many decades I have left to geek out about that, which is probably several because I come from a fairly long-lived family. (laughs) So...
0: So you'll get to see all of this living on Mars that we're all hoping to get to at some point.
1: I hope so. Although I'm not sanguine about that, that even that happening this century, (laughs) but you know, I'd love to be proved wrong. That's the beautiful thing. I'd love to be proved wrong. And to realize this earth really is pretty special Mm -hmm. and the idea that it's special enough to support multicellular life. And if you dig into the details, you realize there's a big difference between life and multicellular life. I mean, Mm -hmm. the earth... 4 billion years ago could support life, prokaryotic life, tiny cells, the physics and the physical chemistry. And, you know, it's like you go through those details and you come out and you look at it again from the other side and you realize this took a lot. This mm-hmm. took a lot for this. And, you know, it's a big universe and I'm not qualified to comment extensively on how many planets might have mm-hmm. these properties by chance. It's, not a large fraction.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it, it <laughs> kind of like wind up it, this way. it begs the...
1: We're in the hands of a God who cares for us.
0: Right. Who is purposeful, right? Like he could create a world that it's would sure sustain would multicellular of the life. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure in your profession, there are plenty of people who do write off the faith aspect that scientism mm-hmm. is the name of the game only and that they try to over explain. But are you finding more and more that people are kind of in wonder and awe, even as they dig into the particulars? Mm-hmm.
1: You know, there's a difference in culture between different scientific disciplines. And that's something that I, I suspect that lay people don't necessarily get yeah. a big dose of, you know. Biologists have a lot of very militant scientistic atheists in their ranks. Okay. And that is not nearly so much the case among geologists. And of course there are blurs. You know, mm-hmm, yeah. discipline boundaries are these fuzzy you know, there are biogeochemists and some of them come very much from the geology side and some of them come very much from the geology side. And geologists, in my experience, to make oversimplification, geologists are less concerned about proving that, I mean, there's almost the divine name, if you put the capital D, capital N in front of it, mm-hmm. of evolution. Where yeah, we're at yeah. a point in history where that, for some, a lot of people, has been ascribed magical powers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been ascribed amazing magical powers, and it's taking the place for a lot of people of God. That concept mm-hmm. of evolution takes the place of God for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And geologists aren't as I have, on average, in my experience, my slice of you know the people that I've been in contact with, they are not going to hit you in the head with that, and they mm-hmm. don't think about it so much, and they have a solid awareness. I think they have at least a reasonably solid awareness, most of them, you know, that we're dealing with something much bigger than ourselves. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. You know, that thing being the earth, the earth by itself is much bigger than ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we owe, in a very concrete sense, existence to it. The fact that it's here, the fact that it's the way that it is, the fact that the sun is here and that it's the way that it is. In my experience, people haven't probed, you know, most of the geologists I know haven't probed that a lot and they are not anti-religious. A lot of them aren't practicing religious either, mm-hmm. but they're not, they're not going to be as militant about it. Mm-hmm. But you um, have, and I do know, some very, yeah, I mean, obviously I've thought about it a lot because it makes yeah. a big difference to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, my own personal journey and I, I do have a podcast that's, yeah. we call yeah. it that's so the second millennium where I've talked about some of these issues. Um, so mm-hmm. if, if anyone is curious, if yeah. anything that I've talked about piques any of that interest, you can go back and there's, there's a bonus episode where I talk about my own spiritual journey, my intellectual mm-hmm. spiritual journey, which was kind of my, Worst of my spiritual journeys, I'd say, back when I was a teenager, you know, it's like I grew. I had this pop up book of the universe that came out in the eighties. Somebody mm-hmm. gave this to me. This thing was, I mean, this thing was huge, complex, intricate. And I remember, and I was also, you know, I read from an early age, so I was. Mm-hmm. I remember taking my copy of the New American Bible to like swimming lessons when I was a <laughs> third or fourth grader or something, plowing through. Because of course, who's going to tell me to do anything? It's a book. I'm going to start at right. the beginning and then keep going. And I, I petered out somewhere in Job. It's very hard for an eight-year-old to read Job and make anything out of it. And I think that's where I, I finally ground to a halt. But yeah, so reading the first few chapters of Genesis, and well, it doesn't match what's in this pop-up book of the universe. So at that point, there was this problem for me, that there were these mm-hmm. two separate tracks. And it took until I was 12 or 13, and I would say I was very much an atheist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I was going through the motions. You know, My dad would drag us to church every Sunday. And I didn't think anybody believed any of it. I mean, that was honestly where I was when I was 12 or 13. Mm. And then I had a conversion experience at 14. And in the course of that, I actually, I mean, God uses, it, it's beautiful to every individual person's, you know, strange details of their conversion experience. Mine was actually picking up a paperback copy of Dante's Inferno mm. that was mm-hmm. translated by an American poet named John Ciardi, And so I owe a lot to his specific notes, which is why I make a point of that. First of all, the poem is, of course, it's one of the classics of Western literature, one of like the top five, right? But at the same time, you know, so already commenting on that for a sort of general educated public, you know, drew out all of these details about. So that poem was written in the early 14th century, the early 1300s. It's valuable, I think, to remember that Thomas Aquinas didn't grow up in a vacuum. I mean, he had a teacher, Albert the Great. He had peers, he had colleagues, he had a lot of people who were actually very intelligent, although you know you wouldn't think that from modern culture, but they were dealing with the science the best science of their day, which was primarily Aristotle, right and they were bringing it into concord with their theology, which had been very you know critically developed over the first millennium and into the second millennium, and they did the hard work of bringing the two into very close contact and working out the actual details of can these both be true at the same time. Mm. And that to me was very inspirational and down to this day, what is it? It's almost 30 years later. I still think that's the project yeah. I mean, they did it then. And, you know, it was a community of people. It's going to take an enormously larger community of people now because there's enormously more science to think about, mm-hmm. but There's great hope and every reason to believe that we can do it. And people are working on it. Yeah. Um, And I hope to contribute to that in my own small way. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm curious about this then. So you're at this age where you can't reconcile the two. And I think a lot of people, maybe even some folks who find this podcast or even Mm -hmm. following this series are in that place. We have an earlier conversation in the season with Brandon Vaught about the scientific attitude of, well, the two shall never meet. The two shall never converge as Mm -hmm. somebody who studies the age of rocks. <laughs> when you right. mentioned that before we started recording, I couldn't help but joke like the rock of ages, which is not just a Broadway play. <laughs> there are these rocks that are in front of us that are billions of yeah. years old. You feel the smallness mm-hmm. of yourself. You dig into the practical applications of, okay, well, how do we get rid of this nuclear waste? And like, there's a moral compass that really should guide us in those conversations. Not just like, I want to save yeah. the trees or I want clean water, but like there's human beings on the other end of this. And there's our duty to yeah. our common home. How do you reconcile that in your head? And then more importantly, how do we talk to people about that? Like, how do we invite them into starting to dig into that themselves?
1: Well, I Amy, mean, you bring up a good point that there is so much, you know, the modern world has thrown away. I actually read a book by Fulton Sheen called Peace of Soul, where he makes mm-hmm. this point kind of in passing, that the modern world has thrown away so much Christian wisdom and it's been kind of sneaking over to the wastebasket and surreptitiously pulling some of it out and unfolding it and uncrumpling it, sort of putting it down on the table as if it was its own discovery. And I still don't know exactly how I feel about that. I think that's true in some cases. And I think there's, in any case, what really deserves to happen is, I mean, gosh, you look at the history of the second millennium. I mean, there's a reason why I call the podcast that so second millennium. It's, it works on a number of levels. Because we spent the latter half of the second millennium, I mean, with the Protestant Reformation, and then there was all of this literal warfare mm-hmm. surrounding the Protestant Reformation. And of course, the religious aspect of it can be and often is overblown. People were fighting because people fight. People right. were fighting because of petty European politics. Mm-hmm. And then religion, in many cases, gets used as an excuse. But there's unquestionably you know, intolerance and Christians killing Christians. And it's Immensely scandalous, as it should be. And so people, you know, and then the Enlightenment is to a large extent a reaction against that scandal. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the scandal of how people in the church, bishops and popes were living in the 15th century that makes it plausible to do the Reformation. Mm -hmm. And then there's this warfare in the 16th and 17th century that makes it plausible to say, well, we should just throw away all this contaminated religious thinking and just Mm -hmm. try to strike out on our own. And that brings you to the Enlightenment. And that brings you to communism, you know, it brings you to Marxism. And so we have these multiple layers of thought in European history, where we're trying to throw away that great synthesis from the early second millennium.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And we're insisting on trying to do it over again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's this, this intricate dance between science, which has clearly gotten somewhere. I'm on the side of like, science has gotten <laughs> somewhere. It's, it's, an, you know, it's a great human it. accomplishment. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. There's good methods in there. There's good methodology. I personally am, you know, I think that there's a lot that like science and theology could learn from each other's methods Mm -hmm. more so than I think people give credit for. But that's just me. And, you know, I don't don't want to place too much weight on that. But yeah, this idea that we need to throw all that away and we're not going to let ourselves look. I mean, the the critical method is what I was trying to get at in terms of it is important to criticize. And the thing about it is, is that the scholastics did criticize. They criticize each other, they hammer on things, and they were willing to throw away bad ideas. And we have to be willing to do that. At the same time, we can't throw too much away. Right. That was the point of this whole excursion. (laughs) I apologize. No, it was good. We do need these absolutes back in our lives, back in our, and that's, it's like listening to our local Catholic radio station and, uh, is a father, Tad.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: He has principles that people in the wider world don't have access to. Mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful thing. I mean, there right. are reasons to adhere to these principles. If you grant us a few more principles, it's like philosophy has been suffering since Descartes because we're trying Descartes' project of cogito ergo sum. That's my only principle. And I can, mm-hmm. I can derive everything else from that. No, I can't. We've got mm-hmm. centuries mm-hmm. of work to demonstrate we have to have another principle. You know, if I go back to the geometry, I need Euclid's fifth postulate in order to get the geometry of the world that I seem to inhabit. Mm-hmm. And people mm-hmm. tried for millennia to find a way from Euclid's other postulates to prove that. We've tried for centuries now to just get by with, there's just, I know that I exist and I don't know if there's this outside world. Mm -hmm. There's an outside world. I'm going to take that. I'm going to make that my second postulate. There's an outside world. It's not me. Okay. Where can I get from here?
0: Right. In my experience, I was a freshman theology teacher for years and I had students who would come in very much like you were as a young teenager of this. Well, no, like if I can't see it, if I can't explain it, it's like, do you think you can explain everything in science? <laughs> do you think you can explain everything
1: Oh my god! from
0: that? Re- what you think is yeah. entirely reasonable, I find. And again, very much a, a novice in any sort of scientific study. My husband's a biology teacher. So, you know, the lowest yeah. rung of the ladder of scientist pursuit. But the more you dig in, the more you are in wonder and awe. Tell me a little bit, Paul, about the current work that you're doing in environmental consulting, because you mentioned before that like, this has practical real-life applications, so we could talk ad nauseum about that there's this intersection, yeah. we know there's this intersection. I'm curious how your day-to-day life as a scientist, which is just a fun thing to say, you're a scientist. As a scientist, how does that Catholic faith inform some of these conversations you're having or some of this consulting work that you're doing, the lectures that you're giving? How do those two things come together?
1: You know, since I got my PhD, I've been a regulator, I've done research, I've taught at universities. Um, at the moment, I'm working as an environmental consultant doing what's a very mundane task, but it's one of those things that we need done. You know, I've been talking about nuclear waste, which is kind mm-hmm. of a highfalutin topic. But, you know, every day we go we drive cars yeah. and every so often we need to put gasoline in those cars, which means there's like, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of gas stations in the United States, for example. And what happens? Well, you know what's happening is that there's a substance called gasoline that's got hydrocarbons that have eight, give or take a few, carbon atoms in them. Well, give or take a few brings you down to six, and that brings you to something called benzene. You ever heard benzene? Mm -hmm. Benzene is one of the handful of things that are a known carcinogen, which means that sadly, we have the human data. Usually, we're thinking about animal data, but unfortunately, we have the human data to say it's it's a carcinogen. It is Mm -hmm. carcinogenic and it's in gasoline. So, you know, every time you go to the gas station, there's a reason, you know, really you don't want to be breathing the fumes any more than you have to. Mm -hmm. But there's also an underground piping system that delivers that gasoline from this pipe, from this tank, through the pipes, to your dispenser. And what happens when that leaks, because guess what? They almost all leak. I mean, I was talking about single shell steel tanks in the ground Mm -hmm. in the 60s. It was definitely the state of the art for storing gasoline. And in the 80s, the EPA started sort of like shoehorning states into checking. So it's, this is all regulated at the state level, but the EPA is sort of standing in the background sort of urging states on. So since the 80s, just about every state, every state in the union has an environmental department and it's different state departments in different states, um, but they have to regulate, among other things, leaking underground storage tanks or lust, ironically.
0: Ironically <laughs> enough. Yep. So that's... <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. If you go to a gas station, you wander around, you notice a small metal disc in the ground that says monitoring well, Mm -hmm. you have just encountered a trace of my people. I am one Uh of those people. (laughs) So uh, we're checking for leaks. We're checking for where the gasoline is going. We're hoping, we're trying to make sure that you're not getting benzene in your drinking water Mm. and we're trying to make sure, or other hydrocarbons, benzene is simply the single most dangerous component of the gasoline. We're trying to make sure benzene's not getting into your drinking water. And we're trying to make sure that benzene isn't seeping into your house, Mm. into the vapor in your house, which has become a thing that we've worried more and more about in the last couple of decades. Yeah, that's an everyday and that's a very visceral sort of everyday type of job, you Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. So I go in, I'm dealing with, you know, know, right now I look at this past week, I'm still learning this job. So I'm still learning just the paperwork of invoicing just the Mm. nuts and bolts of getting the state insurance fund that pays for claims from gas stations that have have tanks that need cleanups, just getting the ducks in order for them to agree to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And then also doing a work plan to go out and say, well, so what are we going to do? Okay, so here's a new site. We've poked a few holes in the ground. So we'll do something called an environmental assessment, which is just to do some general checking to see if there's a problem. Mm -hmm. The first step of that is to just to look at property records, what's going on at the site, let me go to the site and just walk around and look for potential mm-hmm. problems, present or past. And then if there's reason to believe there's a problem, you go and you do a phase two, which usually involves getting a drill rig. If it's, say, a gas station, you mm-hmm. go out with your drill rig, which is often what's called a direct push. It's just a hydraulic ram that just shoves a column into the ground so you can pull some soil out. So you pull the soil out, you look at it, you check it with a probe that can detect hydrocarbons. hmm you log it. What kind of soil is it? Is it clay? Is it silt? Is it sand? I tend to joke with people. If you know what sand silt and clay are and the water flows downhill, you could do most of my job, <laughs> but of course it's a little more complicated than that. So you take that, you, you stick some PVC pipe in the ground with some slots in it and you collect some water and you see if there's a problem. You see if mm-hmm. there's, if there's benzene, if there's any significant amount of benzene, if there's like these other compounds, and you, you go from there. If you find out there's a significant problem, then you start having to poke more holes in the ground. Right, you spread right. out, you try to get your arms around it, you delineate it, you talk to the department and say, This much of a problem is this or is this not something that it really is cost effective for us to try to do something active about, which can range from just Getting a dump truck and an excavator and just digging all of that contaminated soil out of the ground and spreading it out in a landfill, mm-hmm. letting it evaporate, which is unfortunately mm-hmm. basically what we do, um, and then covering it with more garbage. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's the whole steamy underside to how we live our modern lives. And that's I'm touching just one little corner of that elephant.
0: Yeah. Hearing this, so I live in Southwest Louisiana where we have all these chemical plants that process oh, these things yeah. that give us, you know, gasoline. My uncle mm-hmm. works on an oil rig offshore. Like it's so yep. some of the language that you're using, it's like, oh, yeah, there was a huge debate that was happening about how unregulated things are in Louisiana because it is our source of income for so many people. Sure. this gigantic sinkhole just appearing in Baton Rouge that kept getting larger and larger and larger because they they were burying things underground. And, and there Hmm. were these, essentially these salt deposits that were uh, the sciences. I mean, remember this story when it like, I mean an entire neighborhood collapsed. And so there was this ongoing conversation of we can regulate now to prevent tragedies in the future, or we can just act like it's not a big deal and the next generation has to deal with it. And of course, as a Catholic, my, spidey sense started tingling i was like i kind of feel like this is something every generation the principle of subsidiarity like i should feel responsible mm-hmm. in some sense for even my tiny little part of how i am or am not contributing i want to kind of finish our conversation paul by asking you kind of going back to that initial the bigness mm-hmm. you mentioned billions of year old rocks like standing in front of yeah. them my husband and i went on a, a fossil safari when we were newly married on our honeymoon in, in colorado and The guy that was taking us on the tour was telling us, like, yeah, this is from this particular period and this is 500 million years old, but we're just going to go a little far, you know, further along and it'll be 750 million years old. And I did feel that smallness of like, well, I'll live my 75 or 80 years and like nobody will remember anything. And in the modern world, like it'll all be saved on Facebook and Instagram, but who even cares versus like standing in front of this, this rock that is here forever. What would you encourage people to even contemplate? in thinking about the oldness of this world or the the fact that like we're so transitory in comparison to the rocks and the dirt and the stuff that God has created from nothing? What what would be your word of encouragement?
1: You know, so at the end of The Hobbit, the book, Gandalf says to Bilbo, you're just a very small person in a very large world. And Bilbo says, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because I'm really not up to being any bigger than that. And I don't have to be any bigger than that. Yeah, I mean, I'm responsible for a me-sized share of it. And there is a God that's looking out for me. I mean, the moon is not going to crash into the earth. The earth is not going to crash into the sun. This is in the hands of someone bigger than myself who's got it actually very well under control.
0: Mm-hmm, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. I don't have control and it's okay that I don't have control.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Of all yeah. the possible things I could say, that that's what I feel moved to say right now.
0: Yeah. It is a comfort. It's like, I do just have to worry about my little piece of the universe, my, my sliver of paradise, as it were. And then, you know, ask all those big questions later on, hopefully if I get to heaven. Yeah. Right? I can,
1: yeah I'm a finite being with a mind that really can only focus on one thing at a time. You know, there's, mm-hmm. it's a common place that people talk about multitasking is a fiction. It's rapid task switching and it's very draining to us. Mm-hmm. We can only do one thing at a time. We're finite. Mm-hmm. That's what it is to be a human being. We have to trust God. We have to trust other people. There are a lot of people, there's, you know, get, you know, great Aristotelian point is that there's a golden mean. Like, there is, I should be, like you were saying, I should care about the fact that, you know, these things are happening to other people. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I have to recognize I can't fix it all. I mean, I've suffered a lot in my life in the sense that I should try to fix it all and just being mm-hmm. literally paralyzed mm-hmm. by that emotional response. And that's fortunately just not true. There's something mm-hmm. I can do. And if I calm down and pray, maybe talk to other people, because God talks to us through other people, there's a way forward. God is giving Mm -hmm. us a way Mm -hmm. forward. He's given us a mission. And it's a me-sized mission. Yeah. You know, Mother Teresa is that one human being could do. You know, the great movement, you know, she was the one little pebble, perhaps, you know, Mm -hmm. that God and everything that she did was something God gave her the power to do. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, you know, her sisters are, you know, part of like ripple three or something like that from Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. If I'm just part of ripple 57 from something much bigger, that is the dignity. Mm -hmm. I have everything that I need being part, you know, five water molecules in this one ripple, however far from there, I'm going to go way too far in a scientific metaphor there. But that's, it's okay for me to be part of something. I don't have to be the beginning. I don't have to be the end.
0: Yeah. That's a great stopping point. Paul, where can we follow you and find more of these, I think, incredible thoughts?
1: (laughs) Well, if you want to go to thatsosecondmillennium.net, just spell all those words out and make sure to put two S's in it.
0: You know, we live 80 years. It's about the average age. And if you really think about it, 80 years is a drop in the bucket in the course of the history and the age of the world. In that 80 years, we can still do really good, profound things. We can love people really well. We can live a life of deep, passionate faith. Perhaps those 80 years mean more when we do look at how small that is upon the great, vast timeline of the existence of the earth. And maybe we can maximize those 80 years, or, you know, shorter or longer, whatever it might be, if we really ponder and think about that goodness of God's creation, the bigness of God's creation, The wonder and awe that we're called to have. I think Paul Geisting brought that into perspective by talking about both his geology career, his understanding of the age of the world. His podcast is excellent. I would highly encourage you to go look it up. We have a link to it down in the show notes. As well as a link to an article that he wrote for the McGrath Institute of Church Life. We'd also love it if you'd go over to AveMariaPress.com. Up right at the top, there's a a nice big banner that says Ave Explores Faith and Science. You can find all of the great things that we're creating, Facebook Live conversations, more podcasts, articles, videos, social media exclusives, stuff just for you to really dig into this topic and to explore with us that relationship between faith and science, why it's important to navigate these waters, why it's important to talk about it, how to have these conversations, most importantly, why to have these conversations, and what that can do for your own personal journey of faith. So we'd encourage you to click on over to AveMariaPress.com to find all of that. We'd, of course, also be grateful for a rating and a review. Share this podcast with your friends, with your family. Tell them all about what we're doing and stick around for our future series. we love it if you would continue to explore and journey with us. We'll be back next week for conversations around bioethics, things involving the COVID-19 vaccine, conversations about beginning and end of life issues, ways that we as Catholics are called to discern, especially particular medical moments within our lives and how our faith can help direct and guide us. So, we hope that you subscribe to this podcast, Ave Explores, give it a rating and review, sign up for the emails on com, and we will see you soon. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.